If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel. And this week, I want you to meet Andrew Hines, founder and CEO of Canvas Medical, the only complete software platform for value-based care. Andrew founded Canvas in 2015 to shift the paradigm of what an EMR can and should be. The company supports forward-thinking clinicians, startups, payers, just like its partner, Anthem. He's built a cloud-based, fully integrated digital health platform that gives providers everything they need to solve health problems and has made the process of inputting data over three times faster. Before Canvas, Andrew is a software engineer at Practice Fusion, where he built one of the largest real-time analytic tools in healthcare. He started his first company as a teenager, a technology-powered surfboard company, one of the first in the world to design surfboards with 3D modeling software and manufacture them with robots. I'm fortunate to be an investor in Canvas Medical. Additionally, Andrew holds a BS in mathematical statistics from SFSU and an MS in management science and engineering from Stanford University. Let's welcome Andrew. Andrew, first of all, I'm so excited to have you on today. I've obviously known you for a while now. Let's just keep it simple. Let's start from the basics. Describe to all of us Canvas in your own words. And for people who maybe don't totally understand what Canvas does, give it to us in plain English. Sure thing. Yeah, it's great to be here, Alexa. Canvas is software and APIs for modern healthcare. And by modern healthcare, I mean care that is more virtual, more asynchronous, more mobile, and oftentimes paid for differently than it has been in the past. Uh, the software itself is used by two major groups of users. So we're talking clinical users, doctors, nurses, medical assistants. They use our software to make decisions about care, uh, order medications, order labs, order referrals, and keep very high quality medical records. Then there's the administrative or business users, and they use Canvas software to schedule appointments, to code claims, uh, to collect payments, and to run you know, analyses and reports, essentially run the business of a medical practice. Then the third type of user for Canvas is the developer, software developers. They use our APIs and our workflow SDK to implement new software that's patient-facing and integrate that seamlessly with our clinical and business workflows. Say you have a new mental health practice that's online therapy and psychiatry. The psychiatrist and the therapist use Canvas to deliver the care, order the medications, document their notes. The business and administrative users collect payments with Canvas through that encounter. And then the developers can create workflows that might trigger, for example, the result of a screening. Say a positive depression screen could result in a phone call automatically by virtue of the software. So that's the platform. It's unified across those different user sets. I want to go back to that core thesis that had you say, oh, I should go and build Canvas. This is what we should build. What was it? As we fast forward a decade out, what was the thing that you just thought was so obvious and why you wanted to actually go build this? Canvas is, has grown into such an enormous set of capabilities that we kind of have to rewind the clock quite a bit to get to that core 
kernel. And it actually, it does become obvious and it's pervasive in its impact in the system. And in that sort of aha moment or identifying the need was around the data. The data needs to be better to drive all of these improvements we want to see in healthcare delivery, more effective payment, lower costs. It's the data has held back the technology in, in such an important way. So everything's built on this core invention that yields higher quality data. Right? And that invention we call narrative charting. We've played with different words, but sort of landed on that. Uh, and the kernel of the idea is to use autocomplete. Like we're used to in, if you use Gmail and, you know, Gmail kind of knows what you're thinking when you're making your email. Uh, so we use that kind of technology to add structure while keeping a storytelling or narrative nature of the interaction between patients and their clinicians. If you think about it, what happens in that, in that interaction is really storytelling. And we don't want to disrupt that or interfere with that. We want to honor that, support it and do that structuring of the data automatically on the side. So that's that core invention, that aha moment, uh, is this structuring of data automatically with autocomplete. And let me just add a little bit of color here. So my wife is a nurse practitioner. She, this is, gosh, 10 years ago now. Uh, she did her training and her education at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. I was here in Silicon Valley, and every two weeks, I would take the one and only direct flight from SFO to BWI. And uh, we rented a little tiny apartment together that had a sunroom where the only way to put the desks in the sunroom was side by side. So we were literally elbow to elbow, uh, almost touching as we would do our work. And so I, at the time, was a software engineer, a data scientist, and I was working in what's called an IDE, an integrated development environment. Lots of autocomplete, lots of structure, lots of analysis on the code. Hey, faster ways to, to write the software safer ways to write the software. And all of those features are helping me do my work. And then I look over to Anna and she's clicking through form after form, after pop-up, after pop-up. And I just, seeing those two screens adjacent to one another, that was the moment where I realized there's something here and we can do better for her and better for, uh, you know, uh, for the data underneath. Let's talk a little bit about Canvas today. And again, for everybody out there, EMRs are so clunky um, and so complex. How did you think about getting started with the MVP that you built? And then we'll talk a little bit about how COVID has changed this world and how so much of what we all hoped and thought would happen at some point just got expedited. But let's first start with that MVP product. This is such a great question. I think for any founder approaching a complex space, <laughs> there's there's a real challenge in just getting started. How do you take a first step? Um, and so with this idea of, of narrative charting, I think the key process that I followed in the beginning was to reduce and reduce, reduce, reduce the core of the hypothesis. What hypothesis do I need to test to take that first step? And what hypothesis needs to be true to move this concept forward? Um, and that was around the narrative charting. Is it as easy to use as I think it will be? And does it result in as high quality of a, of a medical record uh, as I think it will? And so I looked at specific set of workflows. You know, how can I reduce the tens of thousands, almost infinitely many workflows that go into clinical medicine and scope it down to something narrow? And then how can I deploy it? It's not easy to just get into an exam room as a piece of technology with clinicians and patients. That's, there's a ton of security, privacy, procurement hurdles to do that. And so what I found was, and this is just through conversation with, with clinicians, is that the, the two sets of workflows that were gonna be easiest to measure and easiest to implement were gonna be preventive care and chronic care management. 
And there were a couple EMRs out there, this is back in 2015, uh, 2015, 2016, that had some APIs I could build with. So I started working uh, on an application that ran on top of all scripts, which was another EMR, and it was specifically focused on preventive care workflows and chronic care workflows. Those have well-defined quality measures, well-defined data requirements. Built that web application, got certified with all scripts so that the clinicians could launch Canvas out of the, the main system and just use the narrative charting capability. The results were astonishing. It was 80% fewer clicks, three times faster, 40% reduction in missed preventive and chronic care interventions. So that was that core hypothesis test that, that got us to the next step. And you know, the, for the bulk of that development process, it was kind of me in a closet. Uh, so that was the first step. One of the things that was, I think, very astounding to us um, as we first met you uh, in Canvas was just how much all of your end users were obsessed with the product. To your point, easier, three times faster. Talk a little bit about that customer obsession that you guys have as part of the core DNA. And again, it's really rooted in your story with Anna, but talk a little bit about those early days and how you listen to them as you continue to build. Yeah, I think it, it was sort of born out of something we try to maintain and nurture in the company, which is the a student's mindset. And I really came at this naive, didn't know anything about clinical workflows, didn't know anything about healthcare informatics 10 years ago. And it was a process of, you know, humility and really asking permission to be brought into a sacred space between patients and, and clinicians to appreciate the kind of work that happens uh, in that space. And so that study and that approach is, uh, I think, where the initial insight came from and where, you know, we've been able to continue to sort of unfold the product and, you know, get to a point where we've got all the basics nailed and, you know, we've internalized, in fact, a lot of those clinician voices in the company where we have, you know, we have doctors and nurses on staff at Canvas. It's that important to us that we bring those voices into not just product development, but also leadership uh, within the company. And so it's really woven into the fabric of our approach in, in decision-making across the board. I want to transition a little bit to being forward-looking. I know you always had a view that uh, the world is only going to keep getting easier. Value-based care is going to continue. But then COVID happened. And again, I, I kept saying we started the year in 2020 and we were waking up at the end of the year in 2030 just because the amount of technology we just started to consume. How has COVID changed how you've thought about the future of Canvas? I think the impacts are almost, they're so big and so varied you know, it's it's hard to kind of wrap your arms around all the ways that things have changed. But there's one that's really obvious, and that is what happened in March in 2020, where suddenly, overnight, we went from a fraction of a percent of care delivered virtually to the majority, over 50%. I think the numbers in certain clinical scopes or, or um, the scope of care was upwards of 70% of care delivered virtually. And that was a massive change to healthcare delivery. It also required changes to payment, how we pay for virtual care. And as a result of this, right, and yes, it's gone down a bit, but we're still 40 times higher as a proportion of care delivered virtually than we were pre-COVID. That is radical. You know, it's never going to be 100%. Patients need in-person interaction, clearly to perform physical exams. Remote monitoring still has a long way to go. But both patients and clinicians will need that in person. But there's no question that we are never going back to a fraction of a percent of care delivered virtually. It is going to be, uh, it is a massive part and will continue to be a bigger part of care. What that has done from a capital perspective too is 
is sort of uh, we are in a new era of of capital deployed in digital health. I think the first half of 2021 already had overtaken 2020 in terms of capital deployed uh, in the venture community to digital health. And those these two years together are going to be greater than all previous years combined. So the impact for us and what we're seeing in our pipeline and our needs for our customers is a ton of new entrants. And these new entrants are coming to market as providers, as sort of technology, they're software companies, but they deliver care, mostly online, also hybrid, some do home visits, et cetera. But that surge of new entrants was frankly a surprise, caught me by surprise. Um, and what they're doing is, is increasing the level of competition in care delivery, which is fantastic from a patient's perspective. It's better quality, it's better access, better prices. Um, there's still a lot of unknowns around how this is going to play out, but there's no question that the, the new entrants are a force to be reckoned with. And they've introduced a, a critical new stakeholder in all of this, which is the developer. Software developers and clinicians working together. You have companies that are half technology company, half medical practice. Um, and so that's created a, a new skill set and a new way of working where uh, you know, they're competing on patient experience, competing on that delivery. And our role, how it's impacted our pipeline and our product development is really supporting that, equipping those developers with the APIs and the software development kits they need to design care models, uh, automate protocols, improve quality of care, and do all that without having to spend all of their hard-earned capital on rebuilding the basics of an EMR and a practice management system. So we're in a position to accelerate these new entrants by you know, two, three, four years of development that they would have had to do uh, on their own. Can you talk a little bit about where do you think you wanna be in five years? And what do you think Canvas could look like in five years? There's going to be a convergence in new care models and the new payment models. As an industry, we've been working on new payment models for the last 10 years and trying to get away from incentives that increase the volume of services and move toward incentives that improve health outcomes. And there's a lot of work going on to improve that and, and accelerate that. And then COVID has come and it's really accelerated the care model side of the equation. So more virtual care, more mobile care, more asynchronous care. And our work to this date has really supported both. We've been supporting insurers as they work to uh, move their providers towards these advanced uh, payment models and then supporting these new entrant practices who are trying to figure out how they engage with those payment models because those are the new opportunities for them to build successful businesses is to engage in these potentially lucrative new value-based care models. And so Canvas in, you know, in five years, the platform itself is what stitches together these care model innovations, virtual first, hybrid, how do you go offline to online and back again and do that in a way that's consistent with sophisticated payment models. It is the fabric that pulls these two innovations together. Is it going to be five years or 10? Time will tell. It's so clear from talking to you. You're so thoughtful, so cerebral. You've thought so much about where the world is headed. Can you just talk about in 10 years, in 15 years, there's clearly two or three trends that are just obvious to you. Um, I'll, I'll name one that's clear, which is that just telemedicine, virtual medicine is going to dramatically improve. Talk a little bit about some of your other predictions that maybe aren't as obvious to everybody else uh, that isn't just focused on what you're focused on. That is absolutely one, you know, virtual care will be a mainstay and that scope will continuously increase it's going to be gated by 
remote sensing technologies. So how well can we replicate some of the in-person data collection that's required to do physical exams and that kind of thing. And that'll, that'll make great progress and will increase the proportion of care that's delivered virtually. Another key trend is going to be, let's call it data liquidity, which is a more general term. In healthcare, we love the term interoperability, which is way too many syllables than it should be. Just the notion that uh, any individual, any person's medical record should not be locked up in a silo in one particular practice or hospital or region. It should be, uh, conceptually speaking, tied to the person and go where they go and be available everywhere at all times for folks who have the right authorizations. That will be a reality in 10 years, for sure. Uh, we won't be competing on unfair data advantages. That's not going to be the way that uh, competitive advantages is maintained. And I don't think it's going to be any one company that's going to be sort of that centrally planned repository of all of this data. It's going to truly move and be be liquid across different providers. So, um, and that's going to just level up the the quality of care across the board. We're going to have fewer duplicate services. We're going to have more effective clinical decision making, uh, more effective surveillance and population health management. It's going to be great for Americans as uh, as residents, right? So that's across the board uh, a good thing. And I think the third trend, so you talked about telemedicine, the second is around data liquidity. The third is truly around advancing the science of clinical medicine. Remember, the payment model changes are about health outcomes. There's no way around, there's no way to cheat on health outcomes. People have to live health, you know, what we're going for is a healthier American public. And the way to do that is to advance actual healthcare delivery and the science of clinical medicine. Competitive advantage in the future will be based on better care. And that's going to be through deploying technology and workflow to create more precise interventions, not just with the drugs we select, but the kinds of interviews and conversations that we have between patients and clinicians. And that will result in more trust between those individuals, result in better outcomes overall. And that's a world that I absolutely want to live in. So now is definitely a golden era for digital health in the United States. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Andrew, I want to transition a little bit to you. First of all, I want to just start with your surfboard company. Um, when you were a teenager, as I said in the intro, you launched a surfboard company using 3D software. First, tell us a little bit about this business. The story there is, um, you know, and for folks who surf, you know, you, you know this feeling. Uh, you kind of get you get bitten, and it's something you, you've you've got for life, right? It's surfers tend to recenter their lives around the ocean and riding waves. And for me, I was uh, 13 the first time uh, I surfed, and it just became my life. And of course, I wanted to improve my performance surfing, and so one of the top ways to do that is uh, work on you know optimize your equipment. Um, and so my dad is a mechanical engineer, designer, had always had 3D solid modeling software in the house. I think I was seven the first time I used AutoCAD. That was 
2D at the time, not 3D. But it felt very natural, you know, in conversations with him, like, hey, I want to improve my surfing. Can we go buy a high-performance surfboard? And the first thing out of his mouth was, well, why don't you build one? And I thought, okay, well, you know, that sounds fun. Like, how do we do that? Initially started building them by hand using this polyurethane foam and polyester resin, kind of of a a messy manufacturing process, but a lot of fun uh, to, to do that by hand. And then pretty quickly realized like, hey, I can use a computer controlled uh, milling machine, uh, a CNC machine to cut out these surfboards by hand and manufacture them with some precision. What that let me do was iterate over time a whole lot easier because the computer never forgot the last surfboard I made. So my own performance improved. And then I started uh, making surfboards for competitive surfers in Santa Cruz, where I grew up. They competed with them and it became a business. Um, It actually was the focus of, I almost didn't graduate high school because I was focused on, on the business. And, and then, like you said, um, the, the sort of exit for that was I had a design technology where we were designing surfboards with this uh, 3d parametric modeling technology. And there was a competitor with a construction technology. They were using epoxy carbon fiber, aluminum honeycomb to build hollow surfboards with better structural properties. Uh, They, they were a, a quote unquote real business, right? Not run by a high school student. So uh, they bought uh, the Apex was the name of this, the, the company. They bought Apex and uh, that was history. I love it so much. Also, I'm just smiling because um, you brought up your parents. So I actually want to ask a question. Growing up, if you look in the rearview mirror, was there something that your parents did that set you up for more success as it pertains to your entrepreneurialism? One is just my dad was an inventor, tinkerer, right? Uh, we we had we never had cars in our garage. We had milling machines, lathes, table saws. You know, summers were full of projects of just building things, rebuilding the deck, reinforcing foundations, remodeling, you know, half of the house. So building was very much part of my my childhood. And that came from my dad. I think, you know, my mom's a, a psychotherapist and she she was always just very supportive of that kind of exploration. And then I have to give credit to uh, to my siblings. My brother in particular, we're, we're less than a year apart. He has, he's one of the smartest people on the planet in, in my experience. And that was just, you know, I'm a competitive person and to be next to someone who's so close in age, who is so capable. And I felt like this guy's got a, you know, dual quad core CPU. And I'm sitting here with, you know, not that, um, it just had to work really hard, um, to feel like I could sort of be at his level. Um, that was, I think the environment that, that kind of created the entrepreneurial spirit. I want to talk about what surprised you. You've been a founder now for six years. What is, was the thing that nobody prepared you for? What was the thing that now you've said, wow, I really, you know, you can read everything online, but what was the thing that surprised you? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the process of sort of self-discovery was a bit of a surprise. And I, I, I have no doubt you've gone through this, Alexa, and that all founders go through this. The work is so external, right? You're working with your team, you're building a product. It's all about output, output, output. And that's what we focus on. And, and that's critical. But to succeed in that, there's a lot of inner work as well that goes with it. What's my mental game? How do I manage that? What's my strategy game? How do I level that up? What's my leadership game? How do I learn new skills and lead a team uh, where it's the first time I've done that in the past? And so that, you know, is something that at every new step for the company, I think you, you know, you round a corner and you're like, cool, I've got it. And then there's a new challenge, a new obstacle, and there's a new process of self-discovery. And that has been, I think, a true gift. Um, It actually reminds me of David White is sort of a, 
he's an author and a poet. He's got a book called um, Crossing the Unknown Sea, uh, Work as a Pilgrimage of Identity. And I've, I've sort of come to see Canvas and being a founder as a, a process to understand myself as much it is, as it is a way to understand a market in a competitive landscape and, um, and produce results. So I found an amazing local news story about you in which one of your professors said, Andrew doesn't do anything halfway. He doesn't know how. Where did that drive come from? As you think about just work ethic, I hear your brother, I get it, but you only know one speed. And how do you think you replicate that? You know, there's both, I think with speed, right? There's two ways to generate speed, right? One is to push, the other is to pull. and Certainly having a competitive sort of frame and, and the role that my brother played in, in childhood and, and just, you know, that sort of classic shared experience we have as kids, right, to want to compete is, is a real push uh, to go fast. But I think there's the other side is the pull. Um, and that comes from a problem or a sort of experience of work that produces joy. And, and that is the sustainable part, right? The, the pushing can help you know, you get over the summit, you get around the corner, we all need to push one another and, and have that push behind us. But the, the sustainable or durable uh, velocity and, and just staying in the game, there has to be joy. If there's no joy, it's just a matter of time before you throw in the towel. And so that's something I think all founders and myself, you look in the mirror, you have to be honest about the answer to that question. Is this work producing joy for you? And it sounds, sounds a little Marie Kondo, uh, but the it's got to be there, right? There has to be enjoyment in it. Not every day being a founder is fun. I uh, we all juggle wild punches in the face that you just didn't expect. I always love the like good right hook that you just didn't see coming, and all of a sudden your week is in tailspin. What are your hacks? How do you manage that? What can you pay it forward to everybody that's listening that you've just learned keeps you on the tracks? I mean, the fundamentals are so important. The the sleep and self care right? The, there's no shortcut when it comes to that. So I think that's sort of table stakes to, to staying on the tracks. Um, sleep's probably been, you know, underappreciated. We all talk about exercise and, and diet and that kind of thing, but, but sleep, and, and this is, and I know you appreciate this too, Alexa, like with, with small kids at home, you know, you have a new appreciation of what it means to be sleep deprived and what exhaustion really feels like. So, you know, the, I think those, those fundamentals are, um, are table stakes. And then, you know, use the term hacks. I think that one of the biggest hacks that I've found is um, kind of overlapping strategies. So I'll give you an example. Love spending time with my kids. Joy, greatest joy. Need exercise. Love exercising. And recently, you know, I have an almost one-year-old and an almost four-year-old. I, I have found a way to overlap these two activities where I can put my one-year-old in the stroller. My al almost five-year-old can... Um, get on the bike and we can go for a two, three, four, five mile run in Golden Gate Park. And so now I've got, you know, I've maximized that, that component of time. And it's, it's fantastic. Same thing with surfing. We, on a nice day, we can go to ocean beach. We can have some family time. I can jump in the water. Um, so those kinds of overlaps have been sort of my, my key hacks for this. Um, the last one, which I don't, I mean, this is a work in progress, but is the quiet time, you know, true downtime. Uh, I think, you know, it's like, <laughs> There's sort of eight things you need to do with uh, as a founder and you know with a family and generally as an adult, and you get to pick like three. 
Um, and the thing that always drops is like some quiet time, just some downtime. Um, gotta have that. That's been a discipline I've really only built over the last say 12 months and, you know, partly have COVID to thank for that, appreciating how important that is. Andrew, I want to transition to, I have a few quick questions. Just tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Um, favorite book that you go back to time and time again, can be anything. The book of Murdad. What is your favorite interview question that you feel like gets to the core of who somebody is, something that you really like to ask because it just helps you see whether or not you think it's the right person to, to take a job? The why. Why are you interested in this work, right? The, the reasoning behind it, right? That's, I found to be the most revealing. Biggest pinch me moment to date at Canvas. So what was the thing that happened where you literally said, I, I can't believe we pulled that off or, or, or any moment that brought you a, a tremendous amount of joy? So first thing that comes to mind is probably our first major EMR switch. So, you know, practice where, you know, they're going from their legacy system to Canvas literally overnight. Of course, there's, you know, three months of preparation that go into it, but then executing that enterprise switch and then having a full schedule of patients the next day. I, I remember once we getting through that first day, uh, it was a true sense of achievement and accomplishment. That was extraordinary. Uh, but then I, I would say also, I know this is, uh, I'm cheating here with the second answer, but being in the exam room, right? Haven't done it much since COVID, but pre-COVID for years, it's a practice of mine to really continue to be there and do some shadowing. And that is always a pinch me moment where you appreciate the gravity and the privilege of the software being part of the conversation and part of this ex deeply human experience of seeking care and healing. I want to talk a little bit about if we fast forward two years, how many days do you think we'll be in an office? Zero to three. Last question. Other than Canvas, anything new, new startup, new product, new anything that you picked up in the last year that you want to pay it forward to and give a shout out to? So it can be anything, a service, a product, a new startup idea, but something that you got excited about. I grew up as a vegetarian. This is sort of a shout out category. The, the sort of alternative meat space, I think, is going to change American agriculture. It's going to have a big impact on health over time. So all the companies in this space that are doing, you know, the, the plant-based alternatives to meat, got to know about it, got to try it. I want to just quickly end by saying, Andrew, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, you're, it's a delight to spend time with you. I feel lucky every time I get to. Everybody out there, if you want to learn more about Canvas, head to canvasmedical.com and you can join us next week for Inc. The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. And Andrew, we're rooting for you. Thanks so much, Alexa.